0: Everyone, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Uh, today, I'm super excited to get to have uh, Oscar Clark on with us from Fundamentally Games. Uh, if you guys are unfamiliar with him, uh, you should definitely check out some of the other uh, events and podcasts and things that he's been on and hosted. He is uh, really talented, really smart, uh, also recommend checking out Fundamentally Games. Um, Really useful team. Love all the stuff they put together. Um, definitely follow. They've got some really good resources and stuff out there. But um, Oscar, excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, Great to be here. I, I'm, not, to- I'm
1: not sure I'd go with the uh, clever bit. I'll, I'll let you say that. But um, I, I am definitely at every co- every conference, it feels like. <laughs>
0: yeah well you know i i usually like to ask people you know when they're on the podcast like you know how did you get into games like how did how did you arrive here
1: oh that's a that's a tough one so it depends on where you want to start so um my favorite way of describing it is age 10 my uncle introduced me to the infamous dungeons and dragons um but that's not really how you get professional um i used to um want to make games forever um, uh, when I was eighteen, I made my first pitch uh, to—I think it was Firebird at the time, uh, which was a publisher back in the—I think it was nineteen. I'm going to say eighty-eight, um, wow. maybe <laughs> earlier than that. Uh, I failed. Um, <laughs> Uh, basically we had myself my my coder friend he was we had the perfect team we had the hustler uh, me uh, we had the coder the, the hacker my my friend who ended up going to build he was the he was the lead coder on oracle's payroll platform so you know the, the platform uh, they built for payroll wow. really talented guy sad we didn't manage to make games together in, in a professional capacity and then we had our artist um and uh, so our hipster if, we, if you like uh, and um <laughs> And so we had the kind of perfect team, but we were all, well, Dave was a bit little older than us, he, uh, he was like 28, I was 18 at the time, uh, my, my my artist friend was 17, and uh, we pitched to this big publisher, It's great idea, grand idea, and of course they said, that sounds great, come back when you made it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So it took me 10 years after that to really find the charts. I went off and got my education, all that kind of stuff, ended up. Mm-hmm. And I was running an online gaming service for British Telecom called um, Wireplay, which is the second online gaming service on the planet. Uh, it was in the era of dial-up modems. Um, <laughs> and uh, yes, if anyone remembers what they are, you're probably as old as me, but... Um, so, yeah, I was playing online games in 1984, would you believe? You know, a couple of modem, wow. modem, Uh games like Shades and Mud. Um, and one of the fun things about being at Wireplay is that we got to run these online gaming communities. Hmm. Um, so that was quite exciting. A few years later, I was running 3, uh, the mobile game uh, in the UK. Uh, sorry, 3 is a mobile operator. I was running their games platform, yeah. Uh in fact I actually designed it for the whole of the Hux and Power group or the three G group. Mm-hmm. So I designed one of the first well, one of the first pure three G game services on mobile. Wow. Um so it even even, would you believe, um the first ever mobile in app purchase. Well, the first we've ever been able to find, the first recorded one. <laughs> um yeah and after that i've done a whole bunch of things that's some time at nvidia some time at real networks um i did some and probably the one that most people will think of though is uh, playstation home mm. so playstation home was this amazing virtual world uh 45 million people downloaded it uh about three million people played it every uh, every month and um about three percent of them were spending 11 pound a month uh which is um Apparently still uh, classed by some people as a failure, but it's the most profitable failure I've ever been uh, witnessed to. Um, So I'm a big fan. And to be honest, it's not about the fact it was successful, in the kind of um, raw ways. Just on the day they they turned it off in 2015, the 1st of April, so April Fool's Day, they turned off PlayStation Home. Um, The number of people who stayed there until it was closed. They literally stayed at a literally i've got photos that people screen grabbed where they had their avatars around beach bonfires chatting together until they turned the servers off uh, and there's something magical when you see services where the community is so passionate and desire the kind of connection with each other mm-hmm. um and, and that i think was really important now playstation home is funny because it was the first ever Console. Well, I say ever first fully free to play experience on console. Mm. Um, there was a uh, Warframe. No, anyway, there was a uh, there was a there was a game that had a free to play trial, but there was we, PlayStation was the first one. This is before we had free to play really working on mobile. Yeah. So. Yeah. I've done a whole bunch of crazy stuff. I've run platforms and services. I've designed a whole bunch of crazy stuff. I was an evangelist at Unity for five and a half years um, uh, around sort of ads. So I've been able to be in the really lucky place where I've seen every kind of game on every platform and every business model, half of which I've ever either innovated myself or taught people how to innovate on. So yeah, I'm just lucky. I mean, I literally wrote the book games as a service so you know how much more can you say really
0: that's fantastic well I'm I'm super excited to have you on board and excited to share that games as a service knowledge with people today but uh one more question before we dive into that what game or games are you playing right now
1: (laughs) game or games well I have a constant stream of uh, games I'm (laughs) testing most of which you'll never hear of ever uh because they're so early um But I suppose, um, I mean, I'm still very obsessed with Fallout 76. I spent a year or more probably rejecting it because it was (laughs) buggy and flawed and terrible and blah, 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 blah. But then it became part of Xbox Game Pass. And that was like suddenly I've got the free-to-play Fallout that I always wanted. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm paying for it in the sense that I've had the subscription, but right. the experience is just like a free-to-play fallout. Yeah. Because it's fallout. And I'm enjoying it tremendously. And um I actually am having a break at the moment because I was getting a bit too obsessed with it. Um that's just me. I have to stop, otherwise I get so focused. I'm dabbling a lot with um say the Spire, particularly because I um I've discovered this amazing uh obviously Game Pass is now available on Android. As a streaming service, and there's mm-hmm. this Razer Kishi ha- um, controller I've got, which means I can play Slay the Spire on my Android phone, which is not available on Android yet. Yeah, uh, it's on iOS, but not Android. I'm an uh, I'm an Android boy, PC master race <laughs> person. You know, I, <laughs> it's the years of working on first person shooters. I mean, my favourite story about that was um, Wireplay. We were doing a lot of the early testing for the original Counter Strike.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and so basically when they ran out of money before they got bought by valve i managed to save counter strike i basically bought them a whole bunch of new computers um not a lot of money to be honest we had a, a, a i think it was the fifth beta for wireplay so basically the counter strike fifth b uh, 0.5 release had our logo all, all the way through it and uh you know the yeah it's just amazing. It, it's just one of those magical things where I, like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later, we're st- well, not, maybe not 30 years later, 20 years later, <laughs> we're still seeing people playing and is basically the same game. And yeah. every once in a while I'll dabble and I'm terrible nowadays, <laughs> but I can still remember the maps. I mean, a couple of maps are still basically exactly the same as back in the day and I've got the muscle memory of where the wow. choke points are in that same game. And that, that's magical.
0: <laughs> that's but, awesome.
1: But the reason that's funny... Is because we were only allowed to have three names in the credits. And I didn't know about this until 10 years later. Because the three people who did all the work didn't dare tell me because they knew how upset I'd be not to get my name in the credits. And that <laughs> sadly, I never got it. Anyway, I, I, I digress. But, you know, this is the whole point. Again, it's about culture and, and, and being really passionate about games. Um, and I think if you're not passionate about making, you know, about playing mm. games it's really hard to be as passionate about playing, you know, about making them as well. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, totally makes sense. Cool. So let's talk mobile free-to-play games as a service, which I know is, you know, where you've been focused on lately. <laughs> and I know there's a lot of innovation going on and a lot of people are, are having questions and things around <laughs> that. So uh, before we dive into that, you know, what does games as a service or or live ops, whatever you want to call it, what does that mean to you?
1: So, I mean, I think live ops games as a service applies regardless of the platform. So, we're, we'll talk a lot about mobile. We're actually we're actually platform agnostic. We don't care if it's PC, mm. console, or, or mobile. It just happens that mobile is the place where it's so obvious. Mm. With PC, because of some of the billing models, and particularly because you can't as easily do user acquisition on pc you know mobile we can put an ad we can even put ads in games and immediately get an install with pc it's like harder so games and services a little harder in pc space but the point of it is this games and services getting more people doing more things more often and for longer actually at the heart of it this is about scale it's about thinking about the player value uh you know why do people care about their game and how do we double down on that because it turns out that if you provide things that players love they want to do it again and they might even be willing to pay for it and actually what we find is that uh, not only are they willing to pay for it they're willing to pay more than they would have done had they just had that dabbling with the game for a small amount of time and the longer they stay the more amount and the more willing they are to spend at all so Mm -hmm. It's win-win-win-win-win because you're basically saying to people, oh, you know that thing that you love? We're going to give you more of it. <laughs> the, the problem is where you have a designers who often have come from a place of, let's say, a kind of classic pay-up-front physical box product mindset. Yep. So when you look at that, you say, well, my game's worth 60 bucks. Your game is not worth 60 bucks. It might be sold at 60 bucks. What it's worth is the enjoyment of the player. The player needs to be able to choose what it's worth to them. And we've made a few mistakes at the other extreme in games as well, with whales, the idea of a whale. Uh, whale is a fantastic shorthand for designers who know what they're talking about because it's about understanding that there are different groups of people who spend at different levels. However, a whale is taken from the language of gambling. Mm. And gambling has taught us a lot of great lessons and genuinely good lessons about customer service. Now, I'm not interested in gambling personally. I don't like it uh, as a participant, and I didn't really enjoy running a game gambling service. I didn't actually design and run a gambling service at one point. Um, but I actually have a lot of respect for the way that they manage consumer experiences. There's actually a lot to learn from that. And what I've learned is that actually, if we identify what players love we can actually find that every player has their own level of super engagement. And that's a balance between what they love, what they're willing to spend, and how they feel good about spending it. And I think when we're chasing whales all the time, we often get caught into this cycle of basically trying to squeeze cash. What games as a service should mean, if we are really following that, that simple, more players doing more things more often and for longer, what we should be focusing on is what players love. And that's what the business model should be about because we're building an experience that people care about. I love that. That's great. I mean, I could even go a bit further with that because <laughs> there's another way of kind of slicing that up in terms of the live ops part. So what's the difference between games of the service and live ops? Well, games as a service is having a, a promise uh, you know, to the to the consumer. But live ops part of that, for me, is delivering it. And so we look at it like an engagement engine. So by that, I mean you're going to have events, and they might be daily, weekly, or monthly, and they might be about any number of areas around the playing experience. But then you're also going to have promotions, so things that you're going to sell, which are going to make the experience better. So you need that balance of regular, repeatable, predictable activity that maybe sometimes is featuring some content, or maybe some gameplay experience that you're you're just releasing. But it's all basically around telling a narrative story about the evolution of the game. And it's all about retention and engagement. And that is the sole focus. That's the mindset. That's the desire of the developer. But then by supplementing that by smart tactical promotions which complement and are focused on the value proposition that players care about, we can actually make a better business as well as a better game. And that is all data focused. It's Everything's gonna be about data. Uh, and the reason is that I don't know that my opinion about what is good is good. I just know that I like a particular thing about a game. I need to actually look at see what other players want. I need to actually see what data I can get. And the, and a lot of that is about systematically understanding decision processes
0: mm. that
1: players are making, not just what you think you should be doing.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's fantastic. So, uh, thinking about this idea of you know games as a service, mm. let's say I have uh, a small studio, and I've uh, you know created a game. And I've got some players in. Maybe it's soft launch, early launch. Like it it seems like it's it's working. Like I'm I have at least retention metrics, and my LTV is over CPI. So I've you know kind of kind of all happiness. Yeah, (laughs) all all happiness. You know, you got over that really really big hurdle, right? But but now you're realizing that just because you've got over that really big hurdle doesn't mean that there's like a bunch of other ones that you now have to, uh, you know, get past. Um, And and so, you know, you've heard a lot about live ops and and maybe you have a little bit of it baked in. Maybe you don't really have much of it, but um, let's say you really want to fully embrace it, Um, you know. What would be the first step that you would say, hey, this is what you should start doing to prepare for live ops or to start running live ops on a game like that?
1: Yeah, so I mean, live ops can sound really scary. It can be scary if you're taking it all on board at once, particularly if you're doing it late. Um, so, I mean, what I want to do though is try and sort of make, it, make it less scary because actually, a lot of it's a process, it's a systematic approach. Um, so let's start with the first thing is data. Now, ideally, what you should have done when you design the game is think about how you're going to capture data. And actually what we're seeing, things like a lot of hyper casual games are doing some amazing work in about getting data quickly, getting to market quickly and testing the game works. That mindset should also apply to anyone who's making a game that you think might have some longevity. So let's capture data. Let's capture data in a useful way so we can make good decisions. But let's also think about how we can set up the way the game plays so that we can actually set the configurations on the server. Now, there's lots of really good reasons for this, whether you're doing games as a service or not, because if I can optimise level design, difficulty curves, if I can change the parameters that allow there to be kind of Power-ups, because I can make it easier or harder, I can make it um, richer, deeper, offer new choices, new levels. If I can deliver content via the server that is simply data points or even new packs, new updates, but essentially using data to drive how the game feels, that is the building block. Now, they're good practices, whatever game you're making. But once you've got that in place, if you've got a team that can actually manage the community and set a schedule of activities, what you can look at is like, ah, these are the things that I can change in the game. They have this effect. I've got a window I can, or a box or a message point in the game I can communicate in game. I've got this social media following that I'm building up around the community. I can talk to people directly through that. And I coordinate those activities around specific events. Start with like one a week. But the more frequently you can do things, the better. In fact, what often is, is a cycle and a cadence for each game. And when we look at things from a daily, weekly and monthly basis, so I might look at a daily challenge. Or maybe I've got a weekly event or a weekly theme. An event might be, say, um, I've got three factions in the game, red, blue, and green. And whichever faction gets the highest score against this enemy wins this territory. And that way, I've got a goal that is varied based on how many people play. I don't have to kind of guess at what score they've got to get. Uh, Because if your event is too popular and no one participates, you end up with a problem. So you've got to think about what that looks like. Those kind of themes can be great, really manageable. And then you maybe have a monthly thing. So maybe you're looking at content releases on a weekly basis. Maybe you're looking at uh, feature updates every month. Uh, how do you get to them? Well, it's about stepping back and seeing what can you actually deliver. As I said before, games and service and live ops are a promise to the player. There's a couple of very, very important factors. The, um, I, I call them the Columbo effect and uh, the Kim Kardashian effect. Um, now, when I talk about... Some people may not know what I mean by um, uh, Columbo. Other people will be giggling when they think about this 50-plus-year-old talking about Kim Kardashian. Anyway, um, the, the, what I'm talking about here is uh, the TV show Columbo to start with. So in the TV show Columbo, this was a 1970s detective show where you saw who did it at the beginning of the show, and yet you still watched it. Why would you watch a whodunit when you know who did it? Well, it's because you're not watching the murderer. You're watching the detective. You're watching what the detective does and try to predict how he solves it. Which means you're actually looking at everything on screen, not just listening to the plot. So that means you're waiting for Columbo to say the immortal line, just one more thing when he says it you know he's about to tell you exactly how he solved it so were you right or not there's a time limit there's a predictable release of some surprise that's the mindset i'm trying to encourage people to think about in games it's like what can we do which doesn't require us to build everything in the game what can we do to create this momentum of play where people are contributing through their perception of the game but that only works where we have something predictable. So it's really important to have predictable content releases at the very least. But how much content is released is not actually that important. You can have one thing a week, and as long as you stick to the one thing a week, as you promised, and you do it every week, that can help contribute to the bottom line of the game. Now, I've got lots of evidence of why that happens. I won't bore you with it, but if anyone wants to you know, check it out, feel free to chat to me. The other one, the Kim Kardashian factor, okay? Now, I'm actually talking about the, the, the mobile game Kim Kardashian Hollywood, the uh, the clicker game. The yep. reason I talk about that game is because <clears throat> it is the perfect implementation of one mechanic. It's not the best game in the world, but it's perfect implementation of one particular mechanic I think we undervalue. And I call that unfinished business. What happens in Kim Kardashian? Is I, I'm going to sit, click three times and I've I've set the lights. Click five times and I put on my makeup. Click three more times. I'm talking to the photographer. Five times. I'm now going to do the uh, walk down the catwalk. Seven times. I do the twirl, and I've got to keep doing these things. Each one of those steps has a positive reinforcement reward. I feel I've achieved something. But in all a typical show whether it's a photo shoot or a catwalk or whatever, is around, I don't know, let's get, say it's 47 clicks. I typically will have around 40 energy. I can't complete the whole catwalk in one session. But I've had so many reinforcing positive moments that feel good that I want to finish it. That sense of unfinished business makes me come back. And if you want people to play a game as a service, if you want to play an experience, if you want your game to really work, you need that reason to come back in 20 minutes, in an hour, in two days, in in a week, in a month, in a a year. That reason to keep coming back is is key. So what we're saying with LiveOps is, let's take a step back. Let's not worry too much about the scary stuff. Let's get the basics in place. Capture some data have some configurations, and then let's coordinate a schedule of activities that we can deliver with what we have right now, and then look at building features and content releases over time at a rate that our team can deliver. You will find that you can never deliver the demand that you have, and if if that's the case, then you probably will find that you're getting enough revenue if you've monetized it correctly to be able to grow your team. Mm. But the trouble is that people don't have that experience. So uh, if only there was a team out there that was focusing on live ops as a service. Oh, wait, that's exactly why we founded Fundamental Games. But I'll talk about that later.
0: <laughs> Love that. Okay, so I kind of want to dig into those basics just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so first off, you say capture some data. Yeah. Are there some, like, tools or resource? Like, let's say I'm not really capturing data, but I know that I should. Like, you know, would you recommend something like game analytics or Unity analytics or, you know? There where
1: are, where are so many options. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I'm... So we've used a lot of uh, systems like you know, Firebase or Google Analytics. We've used um, uh, games analytics. Um, I'm a big fan of um, uh, the game refinery guys, although that's more kind of market data. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, sorry, I use it more for market data. Um, Unity Analytics, I, I used to work with the team, so uh, I'm very familiar <laughs> with Unity Analytics. Um, in fact, there's an article somewhere on the Unity website I wrote about how to approach capturing data. Um, it doesn't It doesn't matter if it's a platform or or, uh, or if it's a um, MongoDB on an AWS server. It doesn't actually matter. I, I do think you need to think about what tools you're using, what you're comfortable with, your hosting costs as well. And the more integrated it is with your back end, the better. I mean, just just in principle. I mean, I, there are lots of people out there, lots of different tools. I'm not going to try and endorse or not endorse others. Um but I think getting the right one. We we tend to use PlayFab a lot, as it happens. Sure. But we've used Chili Connect. Um, uh, we've used um, uh, Game Sparks. Uh, I'm friends with the guys who do the Extra Life. Um, in fact, I think I know. Mo- I know people at almost everyone who offers platforms. <laughs> but that's because I'm old and I've been around a long time. The point is not the tool; it's how you use it.
0: Sure.
1: Um, the key thing for me, if you're going to use data is a simple way of thinking about data, which is basically you have an event trigger, which is generally a decision point, the player decision on action. And then you want to have parameters that that data trigger collects. And what I'm talking about there are things like, the anonymous player ID. It might be the um, the device ID. I mean, although you're going to be a bit careful about that over privacy issues and so on and so forth. So you're going to be always be very, very cognizant of uh, GDPR, COPA compliance, etc., etc., etc. So many different things you have got to be compliant on. But understanding anonymous IDs is really, you know, you know, making everything anonymous. You don't actually need to know what that one player did. It's useful to have that information so you can track their behavior and give them good things. What you need to know is what on general are the different cohorts of your game doing? And be able to build cohorts, so cohorts being groups of like I won't say not like minded, but you know groups of players with similarity. Yes, exactly.
0: So, uh, so here's here's a question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in terms of capturing data, like let's say I've made a uh, Candy Crush Saga type game, yeah. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what data action should I store. So, yeah. Obviously, I would store something like, oh, a player logged in today. Yeah. Uh, I would assume that I would store something where, like, uh, Tom started level three today.
1: Well, um, no, no, no. You want to capture Tom started a 11- level. Oh, sorry. A level was started, and the parameter would be the level was started by anonymous player ID that represents Tom. Yep. It would be the level that was selected for that session ID. Yep. Is this level the um, config of the day that affects the way that that level plays is this, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The reason is Tom is going to be playing lots of different levels that day, potentially. Tom might, it might be one of a mm. 1,000, a 100 million, whatever the number. I mean, it was 140 million a day at one point for Candy Crush, but that's <laughs> I don't think that happens nowadays. Um, but there's going to be, we, we need to be able to track these parameters in a way sure. that we can actually meaningfully understand. So if I have a same event with the, a parallel uh, parameter, I can track them, and I can build funnels efficiently.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. I guess that, to go a little bit deeper, Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously we want to track the Tom played a level and you have those parameters and stuff, but once you get into that level, do you recommend tracking like every, oh, the different actions that Tom took?
1: Oh, it, the eternal debate. Yeah. Do you capture everything? So my view yeah. is, <laughs> so we had this debate when it came down, I mean, I'll give you the Candy Crush example. Well, sorry, the, the non-Candy Candy Crush kind of example, a match tree example in a bit, but... Um, We had this debate with PlayStation Home back in the day. So we're talking about 2008, we were having this conversation. Uh, And actually, I was having an argument with the team about whether they should capture data at all. They didn't understand why we should. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: Seriously, this is genuinely true. Um, Anyway, the point being, that do you capture every footfall, so every point in the journey of a player through a space, or do you just capture when they change direction, or do you capture periodically? And what period do you capture? We took the view we would capture, I think it was every two or three seconds, although I did very, very um, deeply consider change of direction. But when you do it with control the change of direction is too variable. Um, but what that meant is that I could create heat maps. But I wasn't creating so much data that it was actually impacting people's upload and download performance. So and it also meant that it, the data was meaningful. Actually, that's fundamentally, that's the really important bit is don't capture things that aren't actually going to be usable. I mean, yes, you don't necessarily know what you're going to do with every piece of data. And there's a good argument capturing as much as possible. But don't try to capture such a volume of data that it becomes too costly, or too performance impacting to bother. You are going to lose data events. When someone pulls the network plug, where the base station falls over, where the phone dies, that last data event is not going to get captured. And also, you will be finding people, you know, there is no such thing as perfect internet on all the time. It goes and comes and disappears, and you are going to find yourself in so much trouble. If you rely on, event happens, it's sent, you forget about it. You're going to have to queue some of this up which means you're going to lose some of it until their next log in. Now, if they never log in again, it's permanently lost. So thinking about caching of data, thinking about the posting structure, making sure that you're posting it sensibly, just realizing what you can and can't do. Another really weird one that people forget about is if you've got multiple data sources, or sorry, multiple data storages. Mm. Classic example of why you would do this would be real-time data versus historic data those systems are never going to actually add up exactly. Don't ask me why. It's mostly about <laughs> packet loss. But it's like, it's, it's like, even though I know the data came from the same source, somehow they're never quite right. Don't sweat it. <laughs> Just live with it. You're looking for trends. In fact, actually, forget almost everything you've been told about data. There's one variable you're interested in. Rate of change. I would say rate of change is the single most important thing to look for in any data, any variable, whatever you want. What I'm interested in is I do something, what is the rate of change affected by that action? If I know what that is, I can start to c- provide insight. I get so it. back to ma- back to the, the kind of candy non-candy thing. So what am I looking for in that specific example? So I Tom is playing match 3 game. So I'm interested not in when you, f- you know, when you fiddle around with a, 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 a candy. I'm interested when you make a match because that's the only time a decision is effective. Now, mm. there is an argument of capturing a failed match, but I could you know I could argue either way on that. So, uh, what I'm really interested in is a match was made. Was it successful? Yes or no? What was the score? In fact, you actually get rid of the successful yes or no by simply having a score because the score is implicit Mm. in the yes or no was successful. In fact, that's the kind of thing I'm trying to always optimise. I want to have the minimum number of events, triggers that I could possibly have, and the minimum number of parameters that I can meaningfully have and infer the rest, because then it's easier to make decisions. Because if there's too much data you get data blind. And if I'm really going to get really, really detailed on this stuff, I'll also start talking about why I want reference data versus, um, uh, so basically when I talk about reference data versus kind of parameters is, uh, reference data is data is not going to change. So I don't need to know what the map was Or the level design was i don't even know what the ratio of each of the candies in the uh, match three (coughs) all i need is to know what that level was and i need to know when i change the level format what the version number of the level was at that date time stamp so my data event can capture the level id and the date time stamp and from that i know what the level was on that day because the reference data will tell me.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, that seems super powerful.
1: And the other thing that's really powerful about this is if we're playing a multiplayer version of such a game, I don't actually have to say who the other players were. I need a match ID. And if I've got a common match ID, then I can infer who the players were in that level by having one event Mm. because every player who's got that match ID will have a common event. Makes sense. So really it's about optimizing the way we capture and think about data in ways that we can actually manage, because if you have too much of it and it's not structured sensibly, you
0: can't get insight. I love that. That's fantastic. Okay, so moving on to point two, which is have some configuration. Yes. Um, So... As I'm thinking through this, and I am often thinking through this, given what we're doing uh, with building tools like this at Userwise, uh, yes. but uh, you know, I, I often hear of uh, folks that started where all their configuration was in the client, um, which you know was okay until they realized that oh, if there's you know one small little bug or one thing that we have to tweak, well, now we have to whole our QA team to fully test it and now we got to submit it to Apple and now we've got to wait a few days for it to you know you're, you're know, talking actually. about my nightmares <laughs> yeah you're right right it's and so gives
1: me nightmares. particularly when it's hard-coded
0: yes yes exactly a number yeah. of times
1: it's hard-coded it's like I mean I mean thank goodness for Unity and, and other platforms that exist of course um where we have public variables where we have you know the ability to be able to manage things like this in a sensible way and, 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 and okay to be fair good coding practice you wouldn't do it but but the number yeah, of cool. times i've seen it
0: oh yeah it's, it's all over the place and and even teams don't necessarily mean to do it like maybe you just threw together a quick prototype and just you know you kept going and stuff it's so e- you know. it's easily done
1: is it yeah. even games where we've been helping uh kind of manage the production of uh we often we have a team in costa rica we often work with well, teams all over the place but this particular team in Costa Rica who are brilliant but every once in a while, I didn't specifically tell them not to do something like that, and it's like, oh. actually, no, I shouldn't be living it. They're actually pretty good. They're, but it's um, it's just such a common thing to happen because when you're just getting something to work, why would you bother creating a config table?
0: Yeah. I mean, sense. why would you? It's work. <laughs> But any, anyways, the, the, the idea behind it, I, I love it, is that, um, okay, And in, in order to be able to run a game at the speed of live, you need to be able to control different aspects of your game. So, you know, if you have a stamina-based game and you notice that today uh, nobody is using their stamina um, and your economy is at risk, you need to get them to spend that, right? So, you know, being able to... Uh, change a little parameter so that the rewards for every level is, you know, two times the the amount, and then you can send a message that says you know, for the next 24 hours two-time campaign rewards and players are probably going to go spend their stamina now, you can react to that proactively before your economy is ruined and your players are happy, they're, you know, getting extra rewards for, you know, engaging in the game
1: But I it, think, it's so many layers to that I mean, yeah. just basic, like I'm going to try and make, you know as long as I know I've got a good game, if I don't immediately put everything in a server-side configuration, I am completely crazy. Because <laughs> level balancing is non-trivial. And as much as we can be mathematical geniuses, the reality is the feel is part instinct, part maths.
0: Mm.
1: And if we have to go back to the coder to re-engineer every time we're going to tweak, we uh, that, that way lies death. You know, this, that's so costly. But if we're doing that in a way that's subtle and sensible, well, why aren't we putting it in a structure where we can actually design new modes of playing experience simply by changing those parameters? And if we do that, we have the building blocks of an amazingly rich, delightful, schedulable configuration process that can make games much more interesting. That's So that's the thing I think is also when when we're designing config tables, in fact, when we're designing asset file names, we put dates in them. We actually have a date so that the games that we work with already know the valid date, the valid from date for that asset. So that we can actually get the game to go get from the server, all the assets that are currently valid or that are due to be valid without having to think. And that means I can guarantee that this asset is going to be available and it shouldn't be available before this date because I put a date in it. And I know that sounds silly, and there are better ways of doing it, I know, but it's such a belt and braces way to make sure that you can look at a glance at the assets tree and see what's going on and see the same thing in the configuration. Because yeah. if we can put a date to something, we can make an event out of it.
0: Mm. That's great. I, right?
1: you know, I don't want to have to sit there every hour changing some configuration. <laughs> I want to have a nice spreadsheet that goes, oh, this is going to be tomorrow. That's the day after. This is a month after. oh, this is the message. This is the and just automate the whole lot, you know, automate the hell out of it. Yeah. Yeah, and whether it's manual, like I'm describing, and I'm I'm doing it, I'm just describing it manually just because I think there are some people who may hear this kind of um, uh, chat and not understand that there are tools out there. But actually, there's nothing wrong with those manual approaches either. They're, like I say, good belt and braces ways of working.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, speaking of tools, I think you mentioned Playfab has some stuff here. Like, you know, what do you typically see people using? Like, what would you recommend if I want to look at uh, doing this sort of server side configuration? Should I look for tools? Should I, you know, build this myself? I know a lot of studios do that. You know, what are your thoughts there?
1: It really depends on what you want to do. I mean, a lot of the stuff we do is essentially a JSON file. Or you know, or XML or whatever doesn't really matter the format. Yep. Um, and, and that's just really easy. Um, when you're using a kind of back-end tool like a Playfair whatever, then obviously there's a whole bunch of things you can do with variables, um, or you can you know have these sort of zipped up files or or JSON files that sit there ready to be edited. It actually doesn't matter. What matters is that your team, your live person, your admin can schedule and plan and know that the player experience is predictable mm. uh, I, I think at the end of the day that's what matters i mean i i, I could be like i say it's it's hard for me because i've got friends in all of these mm. different companies so if i recommend anyone one of them is going to say yeah you know, tell me off and not buy me a beer next time i see them <laughs> i'm sure there's a thing called meeting people in person i i, I it's been so long i i've <laughs> half forgotten um but you know uh, but the, the point, I suppose, is that there are different tools will suit different organizations. So, you know, an Extra Life is going to be, a, you know, it's a more open source kind of approach, and people who are going to use that are going to be building their own kind of flavor. Fine. Um, Plato I like because it was bought so long ago that they've done all the mucking about with it that, that Microsoft could do, and it works with Azure. <laughs> it's all fine, dandy, and, you know, go very much people um actually uh kirsten and um oh my brain's gone on the other guys james than- james yeah they yep, do a yep. great podcast themselves um i haven't actually invited me on it yet Don't anyway um <laughs> that's just a hint um anyway the, the i'm joking i'm joking um but <laughs> they, they, they they know what they're doing and that, that tool i think works very well and um um you know, Again, you know, for example, we're using it for a corporate client on an um, educational game mm. uh, in order to train staff how to behave under certain circumstances. They're not behave, it's more a mindset. <laughs> anyway, um, and we use that for that game. And we're obviously, you know, it's useful because this is a training tool that they now have real data for. It's not often you get corporate training where you actually can look at the data of what people actually did.
0: No, that's, that's incredible. When I've done some corporate stuff in the past, uh, I do not think we had anything like that. So it sounds like it would be a better experience for employees and having that data would be useful too. Oh, exactly.
1: Well, because we're making it a game, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be interesting. But this is the thing about games as a service is that yes, we're talking about games. However, there's so much that other industries can learn from the way we manage games experiences. And so back to your first point, what on earth does a, does a developer who's new to this do? And the first thing is, don't panic. You know, to quote you know, Douglas Adams, <laughs> you know, you know live ops can have a nice, you know, live ops is what you need it to be. Live ops is really a mindset of saying this game is here for the long run. I'm not just firing and forgetting. I actually care about my players, and really, that's it. It's caring about your players. So you look for the ways that you can do that. We've talked about data. We've talked about configurations. Obviously, we've got to talk about selling things. Now, people get scared about free-to-play. Same reason I get scared about live ops. Free-to-play is a very simple principle. Rather than me letting the app store sell my game, they don't care about my game particularly, not not in a bad way. I mean, it's just not their job. But I care about my game, and I know the things that are cool in my game. So why am I not selling my things in my game? That's it. And people talk about premium versus free-to-play. Premium is the wrong word. Premium <laughs> means better quality. Well, actually, technically, if you like Kotler's, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I, 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 I do know my stuff. I just won't go into it. But what, what, what we're actually talking about is pay up front or pay in game. Have you heard of the Hershey's Kiss experiment?
0: I don't know that i have actually okay
1: so so dan Array uh, wrote a book called predictably irrational great book now i'm going to give you the simple version of this there's actually more nuance to it i, I anyone who knows the the book on the story and everything else please don't worry i do know the differences in the details but for the simplicity so people understand and I, I will get the the cost and percentages slightly wrong but it's again for simplicity imagine i am going to sell you a hershey's kiss which is a well, I don't know how you feel about Hershey's Kiss, but not the most delicious piece of chocolate in the planet. Let's say that. And then you've got Lindt chocolate, which is probably one of the most delicious pieces of chocolate on the planet. <laughs> uh, and they were going to ba- they basically sold this in an experiment. Uh, I, th- I think it's one of these classic Stanford ones. I can't remember. Anyway, they sold the Hershey's Kiss for one cent, and the Lindt chocolate of fifteen cents, and the net result was seventy percent of people bought the lint chocolate why well because it was more expensive it was better quality it was worth it
0: yeah
1: but around 30 i think it's actually more like six percent bought it anyway. but anyway let's stick with my 70 30 because it's it's it makes it's more fun uh thirty <laughs> 30 still went for the hershey's kiss because it was cheap yeah uh and i could get 15 of them for the same price um quality quantity anyway um So the next version of the experiment, let's reduce the price by one cent on both sides. So now the Lent chocolate is 14 cents and the Hershey's Kiss is one. It's free.
0: Free. Yeah.
1: Now 70% of the people went for the Hershey's Kiss and only 30% went for the Lent chocolate. Hmm. Wow. Free is massive. Free is enormous. Uh, I did a, a, a webinar on um, uh, Rethinking PC Pricing a, a few weeks ago, and um, I talk about this quite a lot. But the fundamental principle is free is massive. Uh, it is black and white. Um, price elasticity of demand, which is the kind of economics term for the difference in terms of when you change price, how it affects demand, breaks at free. Mm. It, it just completely breaks. Now, what does that mean for games? Well, that means is in simple terms, when I go to choose to buy, sorry, when I choose to play a game and I'm presented with the choice of a pay up front or free to play, the barrier to free to play is significantly lower. You've got to have a huge amount of anticipation and expectation to basically pay up front for a game. And on mobile, where there is so much content and so much choice and so much quality. It's very hard to make an argument to pay up front. It can happen, but it will never be the scale of revenue. Yeah. The fascinating thing about free is it gets more people through the door, which means we can offer more people through the door more things. And we find that we unlock not just, you know, they'll pay the pound, two pound, three pound that they might pay up front. We find people are spending five pound a month. £50 a month. Uh, We had one customer on one game, um, uh, a game called X-City a long time ago. I was working with a social media platform uh, based in China. They had uh, one person spend $35,000 in nine months. Now, that's not a record, by the way. I mean, there are games out there with way higher. But I got to see who that person was. And I can't tell you too much detail. Just suffice it to say, it was a footballer's wife in China. (laughs) She was delighted to spend that money because she got to show off to her friends and what they did together was show off what they did with the game.
0: Mm.
1: That's what they like to do. That's the pleasure they got. And that's why I think it's really care. We have to be really careful about this whole thing about whales. I mentioned earlier, a whale is not somebody who's got lots of money, who you're going to strip asset strip for Mm. a whale is a bad description a whale is actually somebody who goes to vegas with 50 grand in their pocket and stays until they've run out of money (laughs) that's not what we see in games what we see in games are super fans super engaged players a super engaged player might be super engaged at spending 50p a month and if that's the case i'm delighted to have them join us a super engaged player might spend five pound a month and if that's the case i'm delighted what I want to do is maximise your engagement, and actually, I don't even mind if you don't spend a penny. If you're super engaging and you're spending loads of money on ads, or oh, loads of time on ads, great. In fact, yeah, even yeah. if you're not spending time on ads and you're simply contributing to this sense of cultural value of the game, you're actually contributing to the bottom line
0: of the game. Yeah.
1: So that's my mindset.
0: I like it. Okay, so so pulling us back real quick. So, for basics of live ops, so yeah. step one, you've got to capture some data. You can use some tools, capture it in an intelligent way. If you want to know what that is, go listen back. Uh, we'll see if we can find a, a link to that article that you have on Unity too. It seems like it might be interesting to read. Um, configuration you've got to be able to do stuff over the server sounds like that's super important the third piece was you know coordinate the schedule of activities that your team can deliver so when I say live ops team you know what exactly does that mean and maybe to rephrase that you know what is the minimum team for live ops who should be on it what does each person do and and why is their role important
1: so we have a kind of pod like sort of mindset to this so we start off with community admin. Uh, They're generally community managers as well, although it depends on the game. A community admin is the person who is going to activate the schedule. They're also going to monitor the actions and the behaviors of the game. And they're then going to feed back with reports on the data of what happened and why. So that's a kind of key role very pivotal. Uh, The more integrated they are with user acquisition, the better. In fact, uh, I would really recommend, if you can, scheduling your user acquisition, your, your ad campaigns, and so on and so forth, so that they take the same uh, narrative law progression that your events do. Second is your, your kind of game design analyst. So, uh, your, your design analysis basically, their job is to look at how did that event go? What behaviors were seen? How can we improve on that? They're also going to be looking at the promotion part in particular. So they're looking about the monetization, but they're not just looking at it from the point of how much money they made. We, a data analyst will help you with that. Um, I'm umming and whether every team needs a data analyst. Um, I think you probably need a data analyst in your organization, in some form or access to somebody who can help get you started to understand data. You don't necessarily need to they don't expensive beasts. I, you know, love them to bits, mm-hmm. but they are not every team's cup of tea because they can't really afford them. They, they're really expensive people. Sure. Uh, anyway, generally. Um, but you need a you need a design analyst, a designer who is going to be able to interpret the data enough to be able to say, This promotion did well, that promotion didn't do well. This promotion had this effect on gameplay and the game economy. I don't mean the monetization economy, I mean the gameplay economy as well as the bottom line for the game as well. So you've got your community admin and you've got your designer, but you then need a producer. The producer is going to help produce the schedule, but they're also going to coordinate with the team that's going to be making the content. And actually the community manager, the community admin, the um, uh, the design analyst and the producer all are going to also contribute with the coding and art team, what the schedule is going to look like. And we look at that from the point of view of creating these pipelines. Uh, So essentially, we're looking at a content pipeline, which is broken down into into weekly releases, generally in three themes, so one theme per month over a quarter. But we separate out the features so that we've got about one third of the dev time focused on tech debt, about one third of the time focused on usability issues. And then the last, the, uh, the remaining third of the time is features, you know, as in aspirational things that we're going to communicate. But we need three of them. We need one a month. So that's how small we need to be on the thing So in terms of the team, we've talked about a producer, we've talked about a community admin, we've talked about a designer, uh, and uh, we've obviously you know got the tech and um, dev uh, content teams. So that's really kind of the core Um, In practice, obviously, it often ends up being a bit bigger than that, but that kind of gives you a picture of the kinds of resources
0: we're talking about.
1: Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, definitely. And so I I assume with a bigger game that is running more events, you just add kind of more of those teams. Yeah, we we pod them together. So
1: the idea is that as the game scales, we just put on a new pod. And because we've got the data analyst separate from the pods, and because we've got you know um, kind of directorial roles and so on and so forth, that means that we can actually scale. Uh, so you know, why I think we thought we'd have a, you know, an interesting opportunity as a live ops service company is that the amount of resources that an individual game team needs generally doesn't scale with revenue. It directly. It actually. It's a slower level of ramp up of cost than the increase in revenue that that team can get. There's an economy of scale basically. Um, so because we're going to be running multiple, well, because we run multiple teams, multiple games, um, that means that we can actually apply that uh, economy of scale and give better value for developers as well. I like it. Well, I mean, it's the whole point. At the end of the day, you know, if you are a game team. Most of you, particularly the small to medium-sized companies, really need to focus on what they're best at, which is making the great game. What they need to do is find a team that can help publish and release and manage and support that game moving forward. Uh, And increasingly, we're helping teams with their distribution and marketing as well as running their operations in the game as well.
0: Makes sense. So, uh actually, on that note, I, I know we're just about out of time now, but I just wanted to spend a little bit of time on, you know, fundamentally games. You know, who are you guys? What do you do? When should I come to you? And and what should I come to you for?
1: Cool. So, um basically, fundamentally games is a live ops as a, a, as a service uh, organization. We're basically a publisher in in, in many senses. I mean. Um, we're not um paying for the marketing or paying for the development of games that's not our bag there are people out there who do that much better than us um but what we're really good is maximizing the player engagement experience we build an engagement engine with you as a developer and we basically build on that so we can scale games and we scale them like i say through finding more users getting those more users to do more things more often and for longer um So that's fundamentally what we do. But we actually do get involved with games slightly earlier as well. So one of the things I think is really important is that your LiveOps team does not start after you've already launched the game. If it does, you're going to be losing that halo effect. There's a halo effect at launch. If your LiveOps team aren't running your open beta at the very latest, you've just lost half of your momentum. So there's an actual price for not getting involved with your live ops team early. Whether it's us or somebody else, doesn't matter. So we try to get early, in, you know, in, in with teams as early as possible. We actually like to talk to people even at concept stage, or at least that's why we do so many webinars and, and talks like this and, and sessions. Is We're trying to educate people to think about the data, think about the configurations, think about all the things you need to do first so you're building on firm grounds. But we actually also do a whole bunch of work in terms of game design analysis, uh, recommendations, game monetization design. I mean, the work, we, we even currently still have some legacy projects where we're actually doing executive production for the whole thing. Uh, yeah. But we're not trying to do that. That's not our, our focus. We only work with games as services. Uh, that's our thing, but we also offer a free review. The reason we do this is because of that need to get people thinking about live as early as possible. So we do free reviews where we'll look at a game that's got a service component, and we'll give a feedback on the game design, the monetization design, and the retention design. Uh, We'll also look at the market fit. So do we think that game has potential? And we do that free because, A, we want to be helpful for developers, but B, It helps us understand what people are making in the market and how we might be able to help them avoid the big mistakes that we've seen time and time again Mm. so that when they do launch the game, the game has got the best possible chance out of it. So essentially that's us. We're, we're, We're focusing on live ops. We're focused on helping developers get their game supportable at live ops, but at the scale that they're ready for. We don't expect every game to be a World of Warcraft or a League of Legends. <laughs> you know, that's a different beast. But there's small levels of live potential in almost every genre of game. That doesn't mean that every game is live ops, uh, but there's no game is going to be unaffected by live ops. Even if you're making a beautiful kind of single-play nugget of joy... You should be thinking about where that game fits in a portfolio and the service that you as a developer are offering your community and that game is one part of the service. Mm. So I think it doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing, what you like making. If you're not thinking about what sustains players' love for your game or games, you are missing out and I think you're letting players down. In fact, I think I'd leave one thing in people's mind. If there's one piece of data that I think drives every decision you should make, it's what's your percentage of repeat purchases? Repeat purchasing tells you everything you need to know about the success of a game. Because if someone's willing to spend money more than once and on a regular basis, you've done something very right. If they're not, you've probably done something wrong.
0: That's great. I love it. Okay, so one last question kind of our unofficial question because this is the Mastering Retention podcast. Um, If you had one tip or trick uh, that people can use or or think about in terms of boosting player retention, what would that be?
1: Uh, I would play um, Golf Clash regularly. Now, why do I say golf clash? Now, um okay I'm a bit biased because I've I've known Paul that uh, played them for a very long time and um big fan of his. Um but he was very very kind to me when I was at Unity. He let he introduced uh, he let me introduce him and his team to the Unity folks about some social things we were working on at the time. Golf Clash is a perfect implementation of tournaments. Because it does a number of things and, and whether you build a tournament system or not, it doesn't matter. It's what it does that matters. When you join a golf Flash tournament, you have a stake in every play. That stake means that your upgrades matter because if you don't upgrade, you're going to lose your stake. That means upgrading matters. That's first lesson. Second lesson. You're presented with a group of 100 people, no more than 100 people. Why? Because of the Dunbar number. Human beings can't hold in their head more than 150 to 200 people at all. So if you present a leaderboard of 100 people only, you have much greater chance of recognizing some of those names and caring about them because caring about them is what matters, not the leaderboard. No one cares about the leaderboard except for the people at the top of it. If you have a list of 10 million people and there are you're in the top three, you really care. If you are you know 157,922, you do not care. and what's what's also important is that leaderboard changes every three to five days the top 10 percent 10 percent 10 percent are promoted to the next leaderboard which is identical by the way (laughs) um and um the remaining gets filled up by new players and the ones in the middle you already know the top 50 people get fantastic rewards but How you rank in the leaderboards is really special. I play the game normally. If I win, I get three trophies. If I lose, I get one trophy, which means if I don't play, I get nothing. Mm. Which means that the people who play the most rise up the ranks the most, which means that they find themselves in tournaments of people who play about the same rate that they do which means that they find people they're familiar with and they're comfortable with and there's no pressure. The people who play actively and engage and are really good at the game eventually find themselves in a tournament level which meets their actual skill level, making the game more exciting and interesting. Yes, there's the ELO rating kind of matchmaking in the actual play, but the tournament bit is the one that matters because it's people we care about. Mm. That's why I say, I mean, actually, I don't play Golf Clash every day, don't get me wrong. But there was a period of time <laughs> where I played it extensively. I am a huge fan of that game because they did a beautiful job of designing their tournament system. And, you know, frankly, if that's one lesson you take away from this is to play more Golf Clash, then I'm happy.
0: That's great. I don't think I've actually played Golf Clash. I've played uh, a lot of Clash Royale, but I'll have to uh, switch over to it. I figured it was kind of the same, but it seems like they've got quite a few different mechanics in there. It's so. just a golf game. Yeah. Just
1: a golf game. But there's something about the way the tournaments are done, the upgrading and skilling up. Uh, I mean, it's using a lot of the Clash Royale model. Don't get me wrong. But it's the... Like I said, I not my trouble is, I play so many things. I play thousands of games every year. I played tens of thousands of games in my lifetime, possibly up to. I think I must be getting to the fifty thousand. Maybe I might even, you know, say more. But let's say, let's say it's tens of thousands for safety. Um, the the point being that I've lost track of what technique, what mechanism I've seen in any game doesn't matter. What matters is there are these moments in different games that we can take from and the joy about where we are in the game industry is that we're always building on the shoulders of giants. There are amazing games out there. If we can take one mechanic we like, if we can reduce that mechanic to the simplest experience and then add our own flavor to it, we've created something brand new. And that is what makes successful games. If we just think about that first, making an extensible, repeatable mechanic that's simple, engaging, and fun, that's what it's all about. Everything else is about layers, layers of context that give me reason, a sense of purpose, and progression. Layers of metagame, which are about the things about socialization, the mode of use of the device that we're using, those layers that create that longer-term extensibility. Mm. We think about the the event structures that we can build around games that give us motivation, a fear of missing out, the the Kim Kardashian factor, the unfinished business, the the, uh, Colombo factor of the why I'm waiting, the predictable surprise that's coming if I keep going. That is a spectrum of thinking. Actually, That's a whole bunch of solved problems that you just can repeat. But I don't want to trivialise it. It's a mindset that I'm saying is the solved problem. How you solve it in your game for your audience and you tell a story for your players that they care about, that's non-trivial. That's something that takes time. That's something that takes passion and love and, and really, frankly, takes caring about who's playing and remembering the player isn't
0: you. Yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. Well, Oscar, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This was super helpful. Um, I, I love how we were able to break down some of those, uh, you know, core barriers because I, I feel like you hear people talk about, like, live ops all the time, but like, what does that actually mean? How do I actually get started? What are those core pieces that I should be thinking about? Um, So I I think this will be, you know, really, really great for a lot of people to listen to. So I appreciate you uh, being on and uh, folks, you know, honestly, Oscar is super available, super helpful. Uh, if you've got a game, you know, use their game review. Fundamentally games has is great content and stuff. Definitely sign up and follow them too. And uh, if you're looking to level up your games as a service, you know, check them out.
1: Thank you very much. And if anyone wants to get hold of me on social media, I'm uh, I have a strange uh, name, which is, Athanasius, so it's at A-T-H-A-N-A-T-E-U-S. Or just go to fundamentally dot games.
0: <laughs> cool, cool. Thanks so much, Asking.
1: Take you Tom. Thanks then.